good day wherever you're listening from, and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio, for Friday, April 11th, 2014. This week, episode 322 comes to you from the archives in Studio D of Central City, Pennsylvania. My name is Radio Joe Hughes, and helping me this week with this Flashback Friday is Jessica Lawson. Of course, my co-host is the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. Cliff and I are at the RIA convention in Orlando, Florida this week, so we reached back into the archives to bring you what I thought was one of our better shows and one of the most important shows with respect to information for listeners. Back on December 19th, 2008, we had Dr. J. David Miller and Don Weeks on to discuss the AIHA Green Book which was a very important document with respect to mold remediation. So sit back, relax, and listen to a Flashback Friday version of J. David Miller and Don Weeks on the Green Book. Let's get started by thanking our marquee sponsors. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information are available at ieconnections.com. Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at clean, C-L-E-A-N-F-A-X.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. Okay, to contact the show, you just call 724-444-7444, enter our show ID, which is 1547, and then just press the number 1 to join the show. You can also download the show by going to our website at www.iaqradio.com. Follow that link that says go to the show. You can also download the show from iTunes. Don't forget you can get your IICRC continuing education credits or IAQ Council renewal credits by emailing me and requesting a quiz. My email is joe.hughes at iaqtraining.com. It's also up on the IAQ uh, radio website. Let me uh, start here with the Z-Man doing our first introduction. J. David Miller was educated at the University of New Brunswick in Canada and the University of Portsmouth in England, where he was also a NATO science postdoctoral fellow. He joined Agriculture Canada in 1982 and was head of the Fusarium Mycotoxin Program at the Plant Research Center from 1988 through 1997. In 1997, he joined the Department of Chemistry at Carleton University, where he is a Natural Sciences and Engineering Research Council Research Chair on Fungal Toxins and Allergens. Dr. Miller also held an appointment visiting scientist in the Air Health Effects Group at Health Canada. It's a federal department of health from 1999 through 1997. Dr. Dr. Miller develops methods to assess exposure to fungi for studies of damp housing conditions and health to determine the attributable risk and mechanism of the health effects of mold in the built environment. He has published more than 250 papers on fungi and fungal toxins and has co-edited several books and two AIHS publications, including today's subject, The Green Book. Dr. Miller has participated in large-scale studies of fungi in residences and public buildings with Health Canada, Canada Mortgage and Housing, Public Works Canada, and Natural Resources Canada. He helped develop the New York City Guidelines on Mold in Buildings in 1993 and again published in 2000. He served on the AIHI Task Force on Mold in 1998 and the AIHA Task Forces on Microbial Contamination of Buildings 2001 and Indoor Environmental Quality 2002. He is an elected member of the International Academy of Indoor Air Sciences. He received the Ag Excellence Award from Agriculture Canada in 1992, the Toxicology Formal Scott Award for Contributions to Toxicology in 1998, the Applied Research Award from the Ottawa Life Sciences Council in 2002, and the AIHA Award for a Contribution to the Field of Industrial Hygiene in 2005. All right, we also have, welcome back, Donald Weeks, CIH and CSP. 
Don is the in-air environmental certified industrial hygienist. He's been providing environmental and occupational health and safety assistance for more than 30 years. He's got a Bachelor of Science in Environmental Science from Ramapo College in New Jersey and a Master's in Occupational Safety and Health from New York University. He's been the president of Abacus Environmental since 1992. He's affiliated with the American Industrial Hygiene Association, the American Society of Safety Engineers, the Air and Waste Management Association, and Don is currently a member also of the International Society of Indoor Air Quality and Climate. Both were co-editors of the Green Book. Welcome, gentlemen. Do we have some music for the guys? Growing mold in my heart. Growing mold in my brain. Growing mold all around me. And feeding me away. Okay, gentlemen, do we have you both on the line? Yes, we're here. Great. Welcome, Don. Welcome, Dr. Miller. Welcome. Good to be back. Great to have you. Okay, Don, we had talked back in September when the Green Book had just come out and not a lot of people had had a chance to read it yet. And uh, apparently since then, it looks like you've had uh, pretty good success in getting some publicity about the Green Book. How are the sales of the book going? Well, currently we're about... uh Eight to nine hundred copies that have been sold. Um, that's considered a high level of, of sales for an AIHA publication. So it's doing very well. Follow-up question to that: um, Do you put any in circulation? Uh, do you send some out for free to people in the industry, to libraries, to have places like that? Well, uh, each of the um, authors get one free copy, and the editors, I believe, got five. Uh, so actually, yes, I have sent a few out uh, to uh, some of the folks in the in the uh, industry, including I think I sent one to Joe. Yes, sir. Uh, but <laughs> but in general, uh, the AIHA uh, does send out uh, copies uh, to libraries if they request it. But I don't know anything more than that at this point. Let's uh, talk real quickly about. What parts of the book have been? Let's let's first go with the ones that have received the most uh, praise, I guess, and then we could also talk a little bit about which areas have generated the most controversy. Well, from my viewpoint, uh, we have got I've gotten feedback that uh, people have read chapter one on health concerns uh, and have been, you know, that that chapter has got received it from from uh, folks that have contacted me of great deal of praise because of the of the way in which it's written. Chapter 14 on risk communication, which was a chapter that uh, we wrote uh, to talk about how you communicate uh, problems with mold to people who have issues with it. And chapter 18 on judging the effectiveness of remediation. Okay, those have been well received. How about... So far, uh, yep. Okay, what, what areas have you seen some controversy over? Well, I think the the one area that is somewhat controversial is the type of uh, settled dust sampling for post-remediation verification. I think the main reason is because some folks felt that this was something new, although it has been uh, this type of sampling has been recommended by AHA in its publication since the 1996 field guide. Uh, many folks have, were used to doing some uh, air samplings, which is aerosols and other types of sampling, and therefore they felt that the Settled dust uh, as being part of the uh, public uh, post-remediation uh, verification was something that they had not necessarily dealt with before, so it has been somewhat controversial in that sense. Okay. Dr. Miller, there was um, I- I've received some feedback, and one thing I wanted to ask you to comp- uh, comment on is some people have uh, commented that the book seems to follow what they call the precautionary principle versus a strict interpretation of the science. And the second one was that there was no mention of these worldwide standards for mold exposure. Was uh, Let's go with the first one first, if you would. Can, do you have any comment on that? Well, I, I do. I mean, in, in American and Canadian law, we, the precautionary principle is not part of the law. Uh, it is certainly in Europe. Um, and like um, like love or asthma, everybody knows, or at least they think they know what love is. But what does it really mean? <laughs> and and that, that that's that's one of the problems with that term. It it can mean many different things to many different people. And in my ex- long experience, does. Um, I think 
I think what the tradition in our side of the ocean has always been is is um, uh, is there's there's basically two choices. There's a, 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 a on behalf of the state, in other words, the government. Uh, a choice can be made um, uh, to um, invest a lot of, usually a lot of money, to figure out what a tolerable level would be, and that that's the way it, it's it, you have to think about it. And a good example of that is lead or asbestos um, in buildings. So obviously, because lead paint was there, there's lead residuals from gasoline or asbestos from when it was used in used in the past or indeed asbestos that's still in in buildings because it came from brake shoes um um basically the governments have to invest money to decide um what's tolerable because if that doesn't happen it means we're all we don't know what to do as practitioners or public health people um the 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 with natural things though like mold um it's it's very difficult to imagine who benefits from mold growth in a building <laughs> uh and so basically um with natural things um it's it's always been the practice in our side of the ocean that you just essentially work it down to what's what's is, what's reasonable or what's tolerable or, or it's usually set as low as can be reasonably achieved so since i have had a, on your first question since i have had a lot of um uh, part of my career is in making rules and helping um to um develop them i can pretty clearly say it's not about precaution uh but at at the same time if you're going to step away from um uh, you know what is reasonable in other words a building that grows mold isn't a reasonable building um then you have to have a lot of evidence to do that and and so far i don't think anyone has been prepared to say that we have that kind of evidence available but, to us. well that's right quite the contrary and and if there was precaution it was it was i would argue introduced by the acjh biosaerosols committee way back in 1989 so very nearly 20 years ago and in the what that committee said then and that what every committee says then about mold is that because it's uh first that we're we're we're, we're not going to get the evidence and certainly it didn't exist at all 20 years ago to actually form a proper risk characterization uh and because everybody is so different um it's not very likely that um you could actually actually ever draw a line under normal circumstances i see now the, the second thing was that there was no mention of the worldwide standards for mold exposure there apparently are other countries that have some types of standards in place w was this discussed and, and if so why why was it left out as opposed to being put into the book yeah that's that's a very interesting question uh, um uh dare i say especially coming from your part of, of the United <laughs> States. but but uh uh no i mean seriously i mean i mean the simplest answer is that is that if if um if we we think i mean in, in finland for example they've had some ideas about mold uh, standards and uh, guidelines or guidance anyway not standards the way we would use the term and um i think it's very difficult to argue that louisiana is like finland and i don't know what it's like where you are but where don and i are it, today it's minor it's uh well it's about 10 below fahrenheit with wind chill so it's pretty cold and snowy um uh but in the summer it's it's pretty hot so I think one thing is is in our content we'd have to be awful careful about importing um, knowledge or standards that come from very different uh, climates. And and then there's the second thing is our buildings are very different. Um, you know I lived in England as a student and a postdoc. And hell, it didn't have central heating. And believe me, the houses where I lived, where I lived, have central heating. <laughs> so I think we have to be very careful about that. And I think also it's very important to remember that the, um, in, if especially if we're speaking about Europe, 
that is, and and again focusing on the United States and Canada, we have very different views our our two parts of the world on on how rules should be made and whether they should be made at all. And so I I uh you know speaking from that perspective I'd be surprised um if if we wanted on our side of the ocean to take much notice of that but apart and aside from that that wasn't part of the discussion when I got seriously involved in the book which is last year was there a significant amount of foreign input other than north american into putting the book together well i think I think, uh, well, let me just uh, comment from my perspective. If you look at the authorship list, there are um, some of the, um, uh, a few of the really best people in Europe. Um, and again, it's it's very important to remember how different their buildings are, how different their, um, uh, the way they run their buildings are compared to us. But there are some very important public health researchers, and if you go through the list, you'll see uh, a, a number of those. Um, um, in, and, and where they were necessary for academic reasons. So, for example, I can speak to this to myself since I drafted the uh, chapter, the chapter about fungi that occurred on, um, uh, or helped to draft it on uh, different moldy things in the United States and Canada, and. Um, and that was reviewed by really a top, uh, well, I would say one of the very top mycologists in the world. And at that time, he was in Holland. Um, and the reason why we went there is that he was the best guy to actually review that. Thank you. And I was just going to say, basically, we went, for, we went through for the individuals on the basis of their credentials rather than their geographic location. But looking at the list of, of uh, individuals that we included, uh, they were, I mean, depending on what your viewpoint, I suppose, uh, Canada would be considered to be a foreign country. So we have a number of Canadians involved, as as well as uh, individuals from Sweden, uh, Finland, and as was mentioned by by uh, Dr. Miller, also from Holland. But they were chosen on the basis of their of their credentials rather than their location as to whether or not uh, they would be involved in this book. You know, we don't necessarily consider you a foreign country. We consider you <laughs> unarmed Americans with health care. Well, <laughs> well, I, I think the—I mean, I think the reason I lump this together is because we have compatible legal systems. But more importantly, we build our buildings roughly the same way, um, and uh, and uh, and so we and and there are at least one thousand, or I think it's it, it's around nine hundred Canadians are proportional. Uh, our members of AIHA, so it's very important here as well. All right. There's another section in the book that I found very interesting, and I, I want to uh, – Don and I talked a little bit about this on the first show, and people can go back and listen to the section we, we discussed, lower respiratory illness in healthy children. But there's another section on IPH, idiopathic pulmonary hemorrhage, and there's a section about the cluster in Cleveland. Dr. Miller, could you – Give us a little background on what your involvement was in that, if you were involved, and maybe some of your thoughts. Well, I, I was, um, yeah, I'm, I'm a kind of a guy that doesn't like to sit in conference rooms in cities thousands of kilometers away from where the action is. So I was, I, uh, I was called by the CDC at home. I'll never forget it. I, about this time, uh, about this time. Uh, when they were in the heat of 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 investigating that, I should say that's not so uncommon because uh, since you have my CV, you know that I have a very deep uh, relationship with many U.S. government agencies, uh, and indeed have served on many um, uh, committees of uh, agencies like the FDA and so on for my expertise and. <clears throat> The uh, the question was asked whether uh, my employer, who was then the Canadian government, could do some particular analysis that couldn't be done, and and we agreed to do that for the U.S. government. So I was involved in that context, and I did actually take the trouble a couple of times, or actually three times, to go and even look at the typical houses. So I have a sense from that perspective. Um, 
but but otherwise, I I I was not involved in in the crafting or the directing of the studies, except that my advice was sought, and I should say that sometimes it wasn't followed. Uh, but but more particularly, I was involved because everybody is quite familiar with the first and the second, um, and the third and the fourth of the various comments that came from in MMWRs from the CDC and the various publications. Um, and uh, people are a little less familiar with uh, the end uh, process, which is that is that the CDC had never completely wasn't able to rule out that this um, association between very damp conditions and various molds, including, uh, of course, the famous Dacibotras, uh and the illnesses in babies. It wasn't able to rule it out. And so what was done by the CDC, which was very far-sighted, is that three committees were created, one of which looked at exposure, of which I was a member, and there's an MMWR that describes that, a report from the CDC. One of them looked at um, surveillance, uh, and one of them looked at a case definition, and all this is published. So I was involved in the in the discussion of if this ever happens again, what what should be uh, should be done, Doctor Miller? You know, based on your experience and you know the breadth and depth of your research and knowledge, um, do you feel that stachybotrys is a cause of human disease, or do you think it's just something that the media has made up? Well, I guess you're pulling a. <laughs> Uh, kind of a title of a paper. I was uh, inv- uh, asked with some colleagues to write an invited review uh, for medical mycology, and and we titled the paper, uh, asked the question whether Stachybotrys was a was was a real issue or a media darling. Um, uh, well. You know, let's just go back to Cleveland. Uh, you had actually asked in your email whether I felt we uh, would ever know um, what the situation was 14 years ago, and the answer is we never will know uh, because the right kinds of samples were taken, the technology that one would need wasn't there, the planning that was you'd need to actually investigate these things wasn't there. And, you know, in public health, that's not so uncommon. Uh, I could give you many examples of that, but I'll, I'll leave that unless you want to ask. Often it takes a very long time to figure things out. Certainly we'll never know what happened then for sure. Um, as to whether high exposures to stachybotrys uh, affect human health, there isn't any doubt about that. Um, in, um, it, it's in, in, in uh, case reports all the way well into the late 1970s, uh, workers in um, in uh, farms, uh, um, where um, horse farms especially, uh, where there's a lot of hay, um, there have been very well documented uh, studies of exposure, uh, very, very high exposures to stachybotrys causing really quite serious disease not just old ones, but ones in France that were in the late 70s and very well published. Um, um, There are very good studies um, in uh, many animal species, um, from sheep to mice to rats to guinea pigs, of what happens if, if they're exposed to high concentrations of spores or materials and um, from the spores, and and there isn't any question that a great deal of damage results. Um, So as to whether the organism in itself and its products cause serious harm from uh, high levels of inhalation, there isn't a question about that. Uh, the, The whole question in an operational sense for us is when does it matter, not whether there's a question or not. So... The real question is: Do levels inhale? Do people inhale enough in indoor environments to cause these types of health effects? Yeah, well, I, I think uh, if it does happen, it's extremely rare, and uh, and I think we have to put it in that perspective. Um, uh, and when we when you think about health effects, um, 
uh, and you you actually had a question in your email about this, but so I'll I'll just go to there um, first. Um, uh, firstly, everybody who knows about mold knows that there isn't any building that only has one species of mold in it. It just doesn't happen. And as as the person whose lab looked at detail at all the fungi that were present in the samples, for example, even in Cleveland, I can tell you there were a great many other interesting fungi that make, you know, metabolites of various kinds. Um, and it's um, a, a lot of which we know quite a bit about from their basic toxicology. Um, so the... the um, the, the 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 question that that researchers are trying to grapple with now is not so much uh, what happens when there's extreme exposures because we all agree if that occurs it's extremely rare and one hopes it won't ever happen again to anyone uh, whether it be a, a construction worker or a remediator person or a, or an industrial hygienist, or a building inspector, or indeed an occupant, we hope that that won't ever happen again, and the question will never really arise. But what we do, what researchers are worried about is, is, is how do we uh, find out, or how would we measure if there's been an effect that's due to the, a fungus like Stachybotrys? And just I'll just add two more points. Um, I mean, there could be a bunch of effects because we know there are allergens present. We know there's a, a toxic uh, or an inflammatory metabolite called beta-glucan that's always present. Um, a very well studied, uh, very pretty well known for its effects in animals and even in humans from exposure studies. Uh, and then there are these various toxic metabolites. And where the research is now in many labs is that is showing that very small concentrations, really small concentrations of some of these metabolites actually will affect lung biology. And the, la the science there has to be now, does it matter? So we know that there can be effects on lung biology, the different kinds of cells in your lung. And the question now is, does it matter? I've got a question for you, and let's just say it's a legal question, and I'd like you both to comment on it. Uh, let's say that we had a situation where we had mold remediation performed. We did post-remediation verification uh, sampling, and we did both dust sampling and we did air sampling. And in one of the air samples, a single spore of Stachybotrys showed up. Does that indicate a failed remediation project? Well, I, I, you know, I think all of these documents, all documents, because it's not like a TLV guide. A TLV guide, and I don't know about your state, but where I live, and most states, uh, is part of law. So that that's a different um, problem. So what we're doing um, when you read guidance documents is you're you're uh, being given the best information that people can find in its time. Uh, and then you have to apply judgment. So to answer you specifically, in both field guides, uh, the, the sampling manual and, and, I, and in the green book, which references them, um, it says that there really has to be what was defined by the late Ken Dillon and I and others, Phil Morey and Pat Heinsohn, um, confirm presence. And uh, for you to get too excited, and what the definition of that was, uh, many spores in one sample, or a number of spores in many samples. So if you tell me that you did a good job in the remediation, um, you know, uh, following the New York guidelines and the successor guidelines, which of course include the elements of the Green Book, uh, if you are a competent professional and confident in confident in, in yourself, if you're sure that the people who did the cleaning did a good job, and you find one spore, I'd say so what. Okay. Excellent. If I can kind of follow up on that, Please I mean, do. basically that's that's the practice that I that I do as far as uh, looking at uh, air samples. If I've done all the things that 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 uh, David has talked about, including a thorough ins invest uh, inspection following the. Uh, the remediation to show for myself that that everything that was considered to be 
potentially moldy or was moldy has been removed and there's there's a there's uh, nothing there that I can see that is a that is uh, continuing to grow mold. Then I would then and I got one sp- uh, spore of stachyona on one sample, then I would pass that particular area and it would be available for reoccupancy. Thank you. Thanks for. I mean, let let's just pull that a bit. I know that's a question, but I I guess I'd add that 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 I I would think the the the, the onus is on someone who would say that. Um, a competent professional who understands what they're supposed to do, who's done what Don says, and you find one spore, especially on a spore trip, that may or may not, in fact, be stachybotrys. Mm-hmm. Uh, on what basis would you either frighten people about their health or or um, or uh, invest much more money to do something again? On what basis would you do it? That I think the, the, you need to find... Uh, someone who can defend that proposition because I sure can't. Excellent. Well, thank you, gentlemen, for clear and concise answers. We're going to go to what we call halftime here, so if you can hang in there with us for about two minutes, we'll be right back. Thanks to our association sponsors. The Indoor Air Quality Association, IAQA, a nonprofit multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at www.iaqa.org. And thanks to our advertisers, Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Learn about them at legends-enviro.com. And, of course, our marquee sponsors. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at clean, C-L-E-A-N-F-A-X.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. All right, before we go back to the second half, I'd just like to make a quick announcement, uh, both Dr. Miller and Don Weeks will be part of an all-star lineup at the Approaches to Managing Mold in Buildings, which is coming up April 27th through 29, 2009 in Orlando, Florida. And I believe the sponsor, well, Richard Shaughnessy from the University of Tulsa. I believe the University of Tulsa is the uh, sponsor on that one. Yes, they are up at the top here. So check your calendars. Make sure you put some time aside. We've got an all-star lineup coming up in April in Orlando. Let's go back to Dr. Miller and Dom Weeks. Okay, gentlemen, thanks for the great comments in the first half. What I'd like to do, um, I've got a question for Dr. Miller. We hear a lot about stacky and the mycotoxins it produces, but I noticed a paper that you did on inflammatory and cytotoxic responses in mouse lungs exposed to purified toxins from building isolated penicillium, and I'll probably screw up the species, Breva compactum. Well, that was very good. Perfect. Thank you. (laughs) What is a cytotoxic response, and what are the mycotoxins that are produced by this species of fungi? Well, it makes makes a bunch of them, and and, um, I'll I'll want... and they have names. One of the names that, that, that's of interest is, is a compound called bravanamide. Um, and it's, those are present in the spores. And, uh, and uh, so what, what, what it, this gets to what I was alluding to before. So it, it, what we found, which is really interesting, uh, is, that, is that we've uh, isolated metabolites out of many fungi including stachybotrys, and not just the very toxic compounds, but the ones that people said weren't toxic at all, uh, but they're there. And, um, and, and, and what they meant by that is that they didn't cause massive death and destruction, but there are certainly metabolites that were there. 
in in high concentrations. And when I say there, I mean in the spores. Um, so uh, the most fungi have a whole bunch of different metabolites in the spores. Uh, so I'll just take the least, the one uh, uh, compounds called atronone C's, which come from atronones, which come from Stachybotrys, and they're they're present sometimes. Uh, instead of the very cytotoxic compounds, the satrotoxins, uh, sometimes they're there um, 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 in lots and sometimes in little. Um, Penicillium brevicompactum has three or four things that are found in its spores. Um, we've looked at the toxins from the most common penicillium on building materials, which is uh, penicillin chrysogenum, and it makes several things. So we've isolated all those things. And the most amazing thing, uh, at least for us, was that at very low concentrations, even though they're different metabolites, although they don't always do it in the same time, like some there's differences in how long a response might take, is they all basically do the same uh, thing they affect the same pathway in in uh, important cells in your lungs called macrophages. So when I, we say in the title of that paper cytotoxic responses, what we're what that experiment is about is asking the question: If you take very low uh, exposures of these different pure metabolites, what happens is that is that uh, only um, uh, well a number of genes are affected that result in inflammation. So everybody knows what inflammation is, um, and uh, and there's a lot of different mechanisms and and hundreds of genes involved. Um, and and it turns out that at very low concentrations, um, your lung cells of rodents are affected. Uh, by by uh, changing the behavior of certain of those genes. Now, as I said before, we don't really know for sure what that means, but it doesn't sound good. It doesn't happen in the control animals. And um, so what we mean narrowly by cytotoxicity is it means changes in the in the behavior of those cells, not necessarily killing them, so that they're doing things they don't normally do and sending messages to your immune system and other systems about uh, that I've been attacked or I'm affected. Why we want to do that is that uh, we'll be able to figure out which genes we should look for, including in human um, cells. Okay. The reason I, I chose that, I, I had looked through a lot of the papers you did, and that was one of the species of mold that is frequently found. Now, I'll just go over table 4.1 for the listeners mm. in the green book. Yes. Um, this is the filamentous fungi growing on different types of materials. And mm. that was one that was commonly found on insulation, on gypsum wallboard, and I believe on uh, wood products as well. Mm -hmm. Is that... I'm, I'm very interested. Do you think that maybe people overlook these other mycotoxin-producing molds and, you know, focus on the stachybotrys when we have others that may be just as problematic? Well, I, I, think, I, think, uh, I think you have to step back. I think it's not a question that people who, do, uh, who are uh, involved in research of epidemiology and mechanism, um, the type of work I have been involved with, the type, you know, many other researchers, not just me. But, but I think, I think in, in, in the open community, um, uh, the, the, uh, it's not that people don't look at the the fungi that are really there. And you've looked at the table, so you know that Stachyvotrus is actually not all that common in the big picture of things. Mm -hmm. It's only one of many, and on some materials, it's not common at all. Um, uh, so it it's it's more that it gets all the news, all the press, all the discussion. But it's it's not by far the most common uh, fungus that grows on building materials, and you could see that in the tables. Um, I think the the other um, thought is that 
is let's remember what public health authorities agree about mold and health, um, and by which I mean um, the National Academy of Sciences, the United States, the Institute of uh, Medicine, um, Health Canada in Canada, the World Health Organization. So let's just take three, talking about world standards there. All of us agree, all these agencies agree, and the scientists that participate, is that really there's two kinds of effects that we can all that that there's evidence for enough evidence for one of them is um, an increase in in uh, uh, it, well firstly one of them is exacerbating asthma in mold sensitive uh, 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 people that's very straightforward that's not a surprise if you're allergic to cats and you you find a cat you're gonna respond the second one that people agree with the, the the big population effect is that on a population level that when there's more mold there's more asthma and um, it's not known why that is it's not known um, um, how much attributable risk is there but but that is agreed and then the third one that i would say is very important is it's it's a known uh, that there's an increase in upper respiratory disease. And there we don't really know what the reason is. Uh, and indeed, the work you asked about earlier, which is the uh, cytotoxicity uh, stuff, is one of the first ideas that might explain that. So let's, be, let's all remember that, uh, right back to your question now, is Sacchibotris always present? No. Is it always present by itself? It never is. Uh, is it? Uh, is are we talking about these health effects being linked to stachybotrys? No, we're talking about them being linked to whatever the communities of fungi that someone is exposed to, not stachybotrys. And that wouldn't just be communities of fungi, as Don talked to us about on show one. You had, uh, he had seen you speak somewhere and used the term filth. So I guess we have more than just fungi. We've got maybe bacteria and insects, et cetera. Can you explain? Oh, yeah. Well, let, let's, let's just take that. I mean, uh, we just, uh, uh, well, it was published about uh, two years ago now, but I was uh, helped to manage a very big prospective study, meaning that's what of infants. So what we did was recruited pregnant women, and then we followed the health of their babies in relation to their housing, and we measured everything we could think of to measure. And one of the, the, the very first things that's it's in a paper in environmental health perspectives um, was that the amount of endotoxin in the house was the very first thing that, that, uh, that we could see was affecting the health of, uh, of these infants in terms of admissions, uh, you know, going to the doctor and so on. Um, and endotoxin, for those of us who work in occupational environments in agriculture and forestry, is a very well and uh, very well understood for decades occupational health uh, uh, risk. And it turns out it can be present in some homes in quite high concentrations. So uh, yes, not just mold, but mold that goes uh, the things that go with mold which in buildings is almost always endotoxin um, um, uh, mite allergens often in homes uh, um, cockroaches if you're in inner cities and warm areas and so on absolutely uh, but that said um, um, the the uh, the uh, the point I made earlier that Regardless of that, mold is still and is still believed to be, and there's a lot enough evidence to say this, um, an independent risk factor, regardless of the others. But it's never just mold, exactly. I've got a, a text question that came in, but uh, before I go to that one, let me just have Cliff. Did you want to do a follow-up? Well, no, actually, I wanted to go off on a different tangent because, uh, you know, in the United States now, uh, you know, we've had this mortgage bailout and the government's getting involved in mortgages and they've been in the past with this Fannie and Freddie Mac and so on and so forth. I'd like you to clarify, if you could, for our listeners, who and what is Canada Housing and Mortgage Corporation? Well, it's like housing and urban development. Okay. It's 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 not it it isn't a lender like Freddie Mae and Fannie whatever it is. <laughs> uh, you know what I mean. I always get that mixed up on that. But but it it what it is it's um 
it uh, it belongs to the government, but it's not a government department. And so what it what it what it was created in the late 1940s in its current form. And what it is is it's a mortgage insurer, but it also because it's a mortgage insurer, a little bit different than a bank. It invests quite a bit of money in research um, uh, because it 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 wants to protect its it's uh that's the public purpose of it so that it 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 actually can make sure that what it insures is is insurable okay okay me, yeah. so me, it's a government it belongs it belongs to the government but it pays taxes to the government it's not a a government department it's actually called the crown corporation so it's uh it's a separate uh, entity from the federal government but it does it does have a a, a role to play within the government, as far as as what uh, David was talking about, as well as the research it does uh, considerably in such items as as uh, mold, lead paint, asbestos, things of that nature, mm-hmm. similar to what H H uh, HUD has done, for example, uh, in in lead paint in uh, in the states. It it just seems to us uh, from the states that. Uh, Canada Housing and Mortgage Corporation has just been much more proactive, you know, when it came to mold and wetness in buildings and uh, so on and so forth. You know, publishing documents and providing guidance and the website. And, well, so I, I, I think that's true. I think, um, I think uh, it works both ways, though. I mean. Uh, um, both the EPA and and the Federal Buildings Authority in Canada for the government, which is called Public Works, um, worked always very closely because uh, on on tools for schools, on on air quality guidances, because you know we have similar interests, similar problems. It's true that that CMHC began investing in this area before um, was um, the case uh, uh, at the federal level in the United States. But one area where I would really praise housing and urban development in the United States is that it has done really um, excellent work, especially in the past decade, uh, in um, urban areas. Uh, so the inner city areas of your of the United States or inner cities wherever they may lie um, have really benefited from uh, very good programs um, uh, in this area. Another thing I, I need to tell you is that is that the um, the first big epidemiology studies of housing and damp housing and health were done almost exactly the same time from um, the Harvard School of Public Health and Health Canada. And at that, then and now, we, with the Health Canada and the Harvard School of Public Health have a very close working relationship on a number of these air health effects issues. So I think uh, more fairly, the, the, there has been um, contributions on both sides. I do agree that that the the CMHC has made much more effort to communicate uh, what it does uh, than is common, at least at the federal level in the United States, and again until recently. As a, a follow up to that, Don, maybe you could quickly let listeners know what are the most important documents that have been. I don't think a lot of listeners realize that there are these good documents available out there from. Uh, the Canadian government, essentially, and can you tell us real quickly what the names of them are and then how they would get a hold of them? Well, I mean, the the agencies that uh, David uh, mentioned and for which uh, David actually was was uh, a uh, what, what is the title? David visiting scientist is that mm-hmm. for Health Canada? Yeah. Uh, he he. The Health Canada documents are are readily available on the Health Canada website, um, and there's a considerable number of documents there which relate to mold uh, in public buildings as well as in residential buildings. And uh, so I would start with Health Canada. The CMHC uh, documents are also available on their website as well. They, they focus mostly on residential, but there's a fair amount of research that they've done as well, which, uh, which uh, would be of interest to those who have that kind of, uh, of uh, interest. Uh, so I would look for that to be more of a, of a research type of of, uh, of website to look for that kind of background and, and some of the comprehensive studies that uh, David had mentioned before. 
there is also documents from uh, another agency which is similar to GSA in the states called Public Public Works, um, which uh, is listed as uh, PWGS GCS or Public Works uh, Governmental Services of Canada, and they have a lot of documents on governmental buildings uh, that are you know that have issues with with mold, and they have done a number of of, uh, of studies as well as uh, published uh, documents on uh, the ways to address mold. So those three main we- websites would be a good starting point for anyone who's interested in what is going on in Canada. Excellent. Thank you. I have a text question for Dr. Miller. Um, it says, in your public policy experience with the issuance of the U.S. federal GAO report, I guess the Government Accountability Office report in September of 2008, um, indoor mold, better coordination of research on health effects, and more consistent guidance would improve federal efforts. Uh, I'm not sure how to word the question. That is consistent with your green book. So the person writing the question seems to feel that document is consistent with what's in the green book. And their question is, how long do you anticipate it will be, be before health departments begin to issue, they're saying, proper warnings to the public? I guess... You know, I think some do now, but maybe their point is not everyone is on the same page. Yeah, well, look at um, <clears throat> mold, you know, is like divorce and bankruptcy. It's, <laughs> it, you, you, or, or um, you know, a bad medical or, you know, a medical diagnosis that is worrisome. Everybody goes through anger, denial, acceptance. <laughs> and I, I was, as we say in my government, voluntold to work on mold <laughs> 25 years ago. Uh, and I actually said, no, I don't think so. And they said, yeah, you are. You know. So let me just tell you, I've gone through um, uh, watched anger, denial, acceptance, um, uh, you know, really a hundred times. And a thousand times multiplied over in in places all over the continent and indeed over the world, um, and I think we also have to remember that that um, it was only in 1988. So the ACGH advice on mold prior to 1989, uh, I would say, could be roughly paraphrased that it was ugly, but it wasn't much of a concern. I, I really don't think anyone would be able to defend that position today i mean do you guys think that so if you think that you know if you if you consider it that way um everybody's got to go through anger denial acceptance and i think that overall what frust what is a bit frustrating is that is uh is that it 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 is it does take time to go through it every situation where there's a a jurisdiction or an official, those people have got to go through that cycle. Um, they have to get informed and, and keep informed about things changing. So I, I'm more philosophical, perhaps, than the questioner. Uh, but that said, I, the part of the GAO report that I do think is valuable and that ha- that I can tell you has been a struggle in Canada and certainly in Europe and that is is to get every agency singing from the same hymn book and uh yeah. or whatever your yeah. your book of choice and and let's be realistic um when that doesn't happen um it, it, whole wars have been fought over small theological differences between books and the bible and and i think i think that i could it it's it is very important that governments uh, try as best as possible to have consistent messaging to the public because otherwise it just confuses the hell out of people. That's fair. Uh, let me follow up on what we were talking well, about. Well, is that is that you think a reasonable? I mean, is that your sense of what what um, what was what the question was? Or? Absolutely, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I think, and I I agree with you that it's going to be. It's just going to take some time before everybody's singing from the same hymn book. I, I couldn't agree more. I do courses in uh, Pensacola, and from time to time we bring in the public health people, and they seem to be, you know, slowly but um, you know, slowly but surely moving over toward where they're being a little more cautious with the issue. And in other parts of the country, I've seen where health departments, like in New York City, will issue. Uh, 
will issue, I don't know if it's a citation or, a, you know, some kind of a warning to building owners that they have to remediate things. Yeah, uh, well, absolutely. I, let me just interject and say one thing that I'm pretty excited about is that the Center for Healthy Housing, which is probably should be your next guest, Dave Jacobs in Washington, on this subject, he um, he and his team working uh, with the CDC in Atlanta uh, assembled a group of of, of uh, people much smarter than me, but I was also one of the assembled uh, uh, people um, to look at various. Um, um, issues in relation to the population health goal of the CDC healthy housing healthy places and that should be available in the next uh, month or two but part of it deals with the issue we're talking about um, uh, including mold and dampness in buildings and whether or not remediating it has a public health uh, benefit and the answer is yes um, and I think I think the, these kinds of efforts are going to be very important for uh, shortening the anger denial acceptance cycle. Excellent, Don. Did you want to add anything at that point? Um, I think the main thing, the, the point of the GAO study, I, that they coordinate the, between the various government agencies. Having served in, in the government as a as an elected official, I, I recognize what what David is saying is absolutely true because. As an elected official, I remember getting you know, reports from various agencies uh, in a very small level, but uh, the same uh, type of scenario is, is true in the larger agencies, where they gave you, in some cases, contradictory information. What you want as, as an elected official, and then, and then with the new uh, president coming in and new Congress coming in, is you want to have a consistent message from the various agencies as to what their what their practices are and what should be going what should be going forward in terms of uh, of any political action if if anything is needed, so I, I'm I'm applauding the GA, GHO as as a as a political document saying that basically this is something that needs to be done that these these various agencies work together to come up with a comprehensive approach for the federal government to take with regards to mold. Okay, gentlemen, I this has been so much fun i'm running over here it's 12:59 can you stick around with us for a couple more minutes we'll do a couple final questions that'd be fine dr miller that work for you sure absolutely we yeah. really have had a great time so far here and i have a, a question i want to make sure that both of you get a chance to answer other than the green book which obviously was a big thing in 2008 what was the other important thing in 2008 that happened in the indoor environmental quality world let's start with dr miller and then give dawn a chance well, I, I do think that it's it's good to see the New York guidelines um, on mold uh, uh, revised and and published and and I think they they appeared I think officially a month or six weeks ago. Uh, I think that's quite important. Um, I don't have any vested interest in in uh, the University of Tulsa's conference. Uh, but I think um, one of the things that even your show is, is is helping with is what do we do next um and i i i think i think what else is missing what do we need to improve how can we do better what do we need to know uh to help people uh to make it cheaper faster better smarter in 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 terms of remediating buildings uh, you know that's what i think people should be thinking about thank you and from my point i was going to say besides the revision of the new york city guidelines uh, I was interested and in, in pleased to see that the issuance of the IRCRC uh, S520, the second edition, has come out. I think it's a, it's a good comprehensive book for mold remediators. Uh, that uh, is a good starting point for discussions with the cons uh, consulting uh, community. And as I think I mentioned on the last show, I'm hoping that uh, uh, the uh, IESO uh, uh, committees work to uh, to 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 try and uh, bring the information that's available in such publications as the Green Book and the uh, New York City guidelines that are more oriented towards consultants, with the uh, the IRCRC's S520 and other documents, so that we can have a comprehensive approach from uh, from the communities uh, that are involved with remediation, both the consulting communities and the remediated committees, uh, so that we can work together as as David was saying to do things for the folks that have mold in their house in their buildings, in a more comprehensive, quicker, and better way. Okay, gentlemen, we normally have a roundup at this point in time, but we don't have anybody to round up with <clears throat> Excuse me, this week. 
What I would like to do is first thank our sponsors. We won't bring them up again. You can go to the iaqradio.com website and link onto their uh, sites from there. But before we go, we always like to give the guests the last word. Uh, Anything that we missed or that uh, you'd like to make sure that the listeners hear, Dr. Miller, before we go? No, I think you you asked lots of good questions. It's... um you know, it's always exciting to discuss something that's taken, you know, 30 years to try to <laughs> figure out, isn't it? And we're not there yet. I would just add that uh, since this is your last show for the year, happy holidays to everyone, including you and Joan Cliff and everyone else. And uh, thank you very much for having us on. Mm-hmm. I've got one other question. I think it'll kind of feed off what Dr. Miller had said in terms of a suggestion. You know, to me, it's it's just always seemed that, you know, and I think coming back to the doctor's comment on filth, you know, when it comes to filth, you know, a few things are probably dirtier than pigeons. And, you know, the fact that they're known to carry histoplasma capsulatum and cryptococcus mm. neoformans, you know, it seems mm. this is probably a good area of where we need to go next. Well, of course, NIOSH has a very good publication on that and I think I think it's mentioned the fungus of course is mentioned in the uh, in the field guide and so on I I do agree that 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 always needs attention because it's it's such a serious problem for some people um I think I think it's it's uh, it's uh it's uh it's uh it's uh one of a number of uh, fungi that are we're seeing more. I mean, out in the Pacific Coast, the United States and or Canada, and just just a titch above the, uh, Washington State, a fungus appeared that we used to think only grew in Australia, <laughs> and it's a little bit around wood and so on. And there's fungi that occur in in you know in in the more northern border areas of the United States and Canada. They're also quite. Um, uh, troublesome to some people, so I think that there's lots of things that people need to know, and and making sure that that knowledge is available at least to specialists is pretty critical. Yeah. You know, just to comment on that, you know, Joe and I were involved with uh, I don't know whether it was last year or this year we were involved with a pretty large project uh, mm. in cleaning up bat fecal matter actually in one of our facilities, and we pulled a mm-hmm. NIOSH book, and the amazing thing is, you know, most of the book really dealt with, uh, you know, the disease and its diagnosis and its mm. treatment and, and really the remediation instructions were quite lacking. And really well, you're, you're right. And they're actually based on, on, on uh, older documents from the 80s. Um, actually, it's funny you raise this because I've been, not to put too fine a point on it, nagging parts of um, CMHC and Health Canada to actually produce guidelines, and what I can tell you, I was a little bit successful. Uh, and and that last year, CMHC uh, commissioned with Health Canada, um, um, it, let's just say, an exhaustive review of these sorts of fungi, so to to get ready to produce some new guidance in this area, because because of climate changing whatever the cause is we're seeing more more of that across the continent it's spreading into areas histoplasma where it never occurred before so you're quite right uh, the reason why you feel that way is that those guidelines are are pretty dang old well you know we realized they were old and actually joe and i published a pretty elaborate one which actually what we'll do is when we get off we'll actually email you uh, the mm-hmm. link for it, and uh, you know, we'd be open to, to you know to your comments. And we really felt that it was something that needed to be done. Yeah, it, it's a tricky business because it is a pathogen, and people can die. Right. Yeah. All right. Well, I hope Gentlemen, that's been helpful. That's been great. We really appreciate uh, both of our guests joining us this week, Dr. David Miller and Don Weeks, co-editors of the AIHA's Green Book: Recognition, Evaluation, and Control of Indoor Mold. 
Before I go, I want to say thanks to my co-host, the Z-Man. Always a pleasure. The wingman, Chris Boisel, for joining us at the controls all year here. But most importantly, to our growing group of loyal listeners, to our uh, sponsors, and to anyone else out there, have a great holiday. We'll see you at the beginning of next year. Please come back and join us the first Friday after New Year's week for the next edition of IAQ Radio. (laughs) 